It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Jolly, back from a very short Easter break. I hope you enjoyed our whole week of daily podcasts before we went off. They're all still available to listen to. However, we are back and we are talking about, yes, you guessed it, Brexit, but we'll also discuss what's happening with the Tory leadership and protests. Do they ever work? I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Tanner, former spin doctor for Boris Johnson and countless other politicians and now uh, much happier uh, doing PR for people who aren't trying to become Tory party leader. Hugo Rifkin, Times columnist, will be talking about the Extinction Rebellion protests and others and do they ever work. But first, this is Matthew Paris. All this business about, oh, Brexit has gone away for the moment and we can all relax and stop talking about it is absolute nonsense. The next few weeks, the next few months are when the whole thing is really going to hot up. What's past all this stuff about will her fourth, fifth meaningful vote or ever get through will just turn out to be perfectly trivial. Mrs May's position is unsustainable. Would-be Tory leaders will be jockeying for position and Leave candidates will get a real boost from the soaring popularity of the Brexit party. A hard lever in Downing Street equals no-deal Brexit. No-deal Brexit equals general election. General election equals Labour government. We may have two more Prime Ministers by the end of the year. Well, that's a cheery thought to come back after our little break. Um, Matthew, let's let's unpack that a bit. So we are told in this sort of never-ending repeat, you, you almost wonder whether Number 10 just have an automatic email that goes out on a daily basis now, which tells us that the, the talks with Labour are ongoing and constructive, and they look forward to more ongoing and constructive talks tomorrow and the next day and the next day. You don't think this is going anywhere? I don't see that it could, because... Why would the Labour Party want to interrupt what is for them a perfectly benign cycle of events at the moment? Uh, the Tory party looks like being destroyed by the Brexit party. We've got uh, local government elections coming up and then European elections in which the Tories are going to do badly. That's all just music to Labour ears. Why, why, why stop it? So they can just keep turning up, eating the, eating the nibbles. Yes. On- onion bargies seem to be on the menu. And then uh, if and when the talks ever do collapse, it'll be the government's fault and not Labour's. Well, they found something to ask for, which they know uh, she can't deliver, which is a permanent membership of the customs union. And that, that sounds quite a reasonable thing to ask for. And she can't possibly get away with it with, with her own side. But she won't be here for too much longer. I mean, we, we also have a bit of a, a kind of mechanised uh, email that we, we send out, us commentators, 
every week or two saying Theresa May's position is unsustainable. <laughs> we've been, really we've been sending that now for about <laughs> yes. two years. Yes, yes. And yet on she goes, on she goes. Joe, yeah. how long How long do you think she's got? Don't know. It sounds as though the 22 committee are going to be pretty influential in that process, although I'm, I'm not sure I can see Graham Brady being particularly energised about trying to change rules to do something about a sitting leader. It doesn't feel very Graham Brady-ish. He, he, so Graham, Brady, seem... Graham Brady's the chairman of the 1922 committee who yeah. had that starring role. Sir he... Graham Brady, Sir sorry. Graham Brady. I, I did Sir him a Graham disservice Brady. there. Looks like Prince Andrew. <laughs> he does look quite a lot like him. <laughs> maybe, he'll be, maybe he'll be promised Lord <laughs> Graham Brady if he doesn't change the rules. <laughs> but he, he had his moment in the limelight in December when he was the one who announced that she'd survived the vote of no confidence on December the 12th. And what some Tory MPs want to do is change the rules so that instead of giving her a year without being challenged again, it might be like six months. And there's been a suggestion that there's some sort of, if the grassroots get organised enough, there's a percentage of them that can do something. But it's really hard watching this from the outside because the problem is all political parties lie about their membership, which means no one actually knows what 10% is because we don't know. It's probably the, the Conservatives would claim it's a much higher number because they claim to have much higher members, uh, membership numbers than they've actually got. They don't so actually we don't know, know, you know. Well, that is that is often the problem because you're a member locally, you're not necessarily a yeah. member centrally, and that becomes very hard in terms of managing those numbers. Hugo, did you enjoy the break where everyone stopped talking about Brexit for a week? <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, I got some work done. It was great. I, I slightly feel like I'm losing my mind at the moment because it's like... When <laughs> it, what, just specifically this conversation? Well, when you have a government and the government can't get its policy through the House of Commons, what happens is a general election. When you have a general election and the opposition party gets, mo- gets more votes, what happens is the leader of the opposition becomes the prime minister. None of this is weird. None of this is uncharted territory. None of this is like, oh, my God, wouldn't it be terrible if that happens? That's literally what our political system is. You've got this whole, this whole thing of, like, well, we can't possibly have a general election. Wouldn't it be terrible if Corbyn became prime minister? I mean, it wouldn't be great. I'm not wild about it. He is the leader of the opposition. This is a situation in which there ought to be an election. If he become pri- becomes prime minister, tough. Them's the breaks. That's, that's what our system is. And a lot of the, the sort of mad stasis we're in at the moment, it's like this denial of reality. It's this denial of it's this government that's going well. We can't get our policy through, but the last thing we want to do is have a general election. It's like no, that that's that's just not what the rules are. That's not how the system works. But then have the opposition one. aren't necessarily pushing for this general election for them to take over, which makes you wonder whether Corbyn's <laughs> slightly frightened of himself being prime minister as well. But it's, but it's not up to them. I mean, they've got to have one too, you know, and they can lose it too. But the fundamental problem is if we had a general election now, yeah in which at some point someone would have to talk about Brexit, nobody yep. knows what the Tory or Labour policy would be. Don't care. That's where we are at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's, that's not a worse we situation than the one now. You know, if we have a general election and it doesn't work, then at least we know where we are. Whereas now it's just this sort of mad stasis of nothing. But what happens if we have a general election and we end up with a hung parliament again, possibly even more hung, so nobody can do anything? Then, well, I mean, then, then, we have another one. then there's a good case for a referendum. I, I mean, then there's, a, then there's a very good case for a referendum. Or revoke. Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, but I mean, you'd, basically, you'd hope that the situation, even if there's a hung parliament, would be in some way clarified. To be serious for a moment, I'm being entirely serious completely, but to be even more serious, <laughs> um, the good thing about having an election would be that both of the parties would be forced to have policies about Brexit in their manifesto, which means the people who stood as candidates for that party would be at least morally bound to supporting them, which, which, would, means, then, which would then mean there'd be just a good deal less bullshit going no, on. No, it means the Conservative Party would completely fall apart. Well, fine, they couldn't do it. agree on a manifesto. If you're in a party and you don't agree with everybody else in the party, you do fall apart. <laughs> that's, they kind that's of have already. Apart is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. That, that, um, I think we might have passed the point with the Tory party. We're, we're on wafer thin apart. stitching now. Yeah. <laughs> because something has to happen with Brexit. We Does can't. it? It hasn't yet. 
I mean, there is the argument for saying, I can't remember who is a colleague whose idea I'm, I'm shamelessly pinching has just said that the Theresa May should just announce that we have left the EU and everyone <laughs> will be so pleased uh, that we could just carry on as we are in this permanent stasis in the background, but just decide that we've left. We take down the flags, we have some fireworks, we just stop talking about it. Matthew, going back to your original uh, thesis, you sound like you think that no deal is the direction we're heading it. If we reach the point now where just properly preparing for no deal might be the best plan of attack? I think it's between no deal and revoke. I think faced with no deal, uh, the House of Commons might revoke. But but no deal is, is, is the first thing we're going to see, I think, as, as, as in prospect. And that's because I don't see the Conservative Party choosing a less Brexitish leader than they've got at the moment. And uh, anybody who ran for the leadership of the party would have to run on... No, he wouldn't say no deal. Um, he would say, uh, we're going to make these demands, and everyone would know that the demands were uh, unmeetable. Much like Theresa May's originally. Yes. yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is, uh, sort of got us into this pickle. Could, could I say, the, the thing is, I mean, with those two endpoints, no deal and revoke, they're not endpoints. Because you go into no deal and then immediately you're still negotiating. You're just negotiating on the outside. Yes, yeah. you go And you're going to revoke. And, I mean, all, all hell breaks loose. And you're still basically aiming for Brexit just in a, without the kind of without the ticking clock. So neither of those things actually makes the situation end. No, They're once just you've revoked, way of you've revoked. The, yeah. Once you've revoked, we're back in the European Union. And they probably wouldn't let us apply to leave again straight away. They'd say, you're, you're playing silly buggers with us. But we could still just leave. I mean, we could just still not be. I mean, God. <laughs> but we could, you know, if if. Oh, I see what you yeah. mean. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if, yes. if, if, I mean, if, at any point, if, if you go, if you in go the for, last forty years, any British government yeah. could have left. If if yes. no deal is is the deal you're going for, you can just go. Yes. And so revoking doesn't stop that being a sort of. You'd still have you'd still have the Brexit party and Farage and everybody I see else what you mean. saying yes. no. Let's yes. just go right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. None of that ends. Nothing ever ends. <laughs> Oh, my God. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've had oh, no. I've had I actually got hit. Easter, I got hit you know? by an EU flag on the way in, which just incensed oh, wow. me even more. The amount of times you walk through Westminster and you just get swiped by a flag because they're these huge, great big things. The idea that those folks would, you know, rest in any way on either side, actually. Mm. I've been saying since 2016 that it was going to be no deal because I, I do not foresee a situation where the very, very extreme ends of this debate ever come to any agreement. I, they will not be happy, and the rhetoric as it grows and grows and grows will just be more and more unhappy with whatever the solution is. I don't agree. I, I, I think that if we had a referendum and it was uh, to leave, even people like me would say, well, we'll have to leave. If we had remain, I, I think a lot of people would actually go quiet. I think we would have uh, two or three years when the, the hard Brexiteers would uh, step back to, to regain, reform their, their campaign. No, I, I think everybody is waiting for somebody to say this has happened or this has not happened and will then accept not happened. So it feels happened. to me that if you have no deal, you have this period of potential chaos where stuff doesn't work and then everyone sits down and says, well, hang on, we've got to fix this because this yeah. is urgent now. And it forces everyone to go and, you know, it's not just about relying on Matt Hancock's fridges anymore. The <laughs> fridges are running out. We now have to do something. And so it's it's to some extent for me, it feels that there is a point at which it concentrates the minds because those that are saying, the, we're in the problem now, aren't we, that there are those that are saying no deal will be fine and then we've got other people that are saying no, no deal will be catastrophic and no one really knows. No. We simply don't know what will happen until it happens. So therefore it might be a case of it happens and then everyone rushes in because they then have to agree to stuff they would never have agreed to before. 
Yeah, we'd have to make the best of it, wouldn't we? But, um, you know... And at what point... Because Lemming were... might have said that as it leaps over the cliff. <laughs> Maybe we need some. Maybe we need some of that. It, what, how long does this stasis have to go on for? Where preparing for no deal means we might be actually quite ready for it, and we should just get on and do if it. If you talk to people at the DFT, if you talk to the transport folks, they reckon they're they're sorted. What? They they would. We want to rely on the word of Chris Grayling. No, I've, I've that spoken. All to, is going to be well. I've spoken to others, and there are claims that you know they were pretty much there, particularly on things like aviation. They had sorted a lot of stuff out. I mean, I had a holiday booked which was I would have actually been away, I think, 10 days after we were due to leave. And I panicked because someone said to me, would you really trust that much money on a big holiday with Chris Grayling? And I sort of at the last minute... You were, you were going on holiday with not. Chris Grayling? No, as in, as in, as in the fact that my fa- the fate of my holiday was in his hands, allegedly. Um, but actually, if you speak to some of those folks, you know, there was a lot of talk that DEFRA were way ahead in terms of their planning and there was lots of suggestions that they'd really got to grips with stuff quickly. And actually, some of DFT, I know plenty parts of DFT there were concerns about, but some parts of the transport department apparently had got their their side together so you do wonder if there would be significant parts because there must be people sitting all over Europe thinking this just is not going to get solved. Okay and just before we move on let's just talk about these the, the emergence of these two Brexit forces. Matthew you were talking about the Brexit party they've got Annunciata Rees-Mogg and other people we previously hadn't heard of uh, lining up um, for the uh, Brexit party. Uh, while we're in the studio Change UK are announcing their candidates who include Rachel Johnson, Stephen Dole and Gavin Esler. What? Gavin Esler? Gavin Esler, apparently, all standing for Change UK. Hmm. Now, the weird thing is everyone thought that Britain was crying out for a new centrist party who was going to electrify the nation, and actually it seems to be the Brexit party was doing better in the polls. Brexit party's not even a party, it's just a name. There's nothing there. There's just a name (laughs) and Nigel Farage and and, and the word Brexit, and that's it. You know, I mean, Farage... You know, I I wrote about this in my, my column this morning, but Farage... Himself says, "Oh, we have we have all the same policies as UKIP, but the personnel in UKIP have got a bit iffy." Basically, is what he says, and um and so give it time, and the personnel in the Brexit Party will get a bit iffy as well because the iffy people will just flock to that. There's nothing really there. It's just it's it's literally just Brexit. Tell them again. A European election, however, is absolutely tailor made for a party that, as you say, doesn't yeah. exist because everybody can vote for Brexit if they if they want to and feel that it's an election that doesn't really matter in any other way. After which, I agree, uh, the Brexit party would be in trouble. But yeah, I mean, which is why, I mean, as, you know, kind of sort of sometimes u- uber-centrist, I'm sort of vaguely furious with the various centrist parties, with Change UK, with the Lib Dems, for their failure to put together a sort of tokenistic Remain ticket mm. to counter the Brexit ticket. It would have been relatively easy, easy for them to do. The reason why they haven't done it is because they're both jockeying against each other. And I think it's I think it's sort of self indulgent and basically a betrayal of their primary function, and I, I have no sense of humour about it at all. Joe, who do you think is currently winning that battle? Goodness knows. <laughs> I mean, it, it just is. It is just a bit of a mess, isn't it? With your old, with your sort of PR hat on, Change UK is a terrible name, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can't even find it online because there were so many things called Change and yeah. Change.org and yeah. all that sort of yeah. stuff. And it puts off conservatives who don't like Change. <laughs> I, I, that's why I became a conservative. And the Labour Party. I don't, don't want don't, Change. The Labour Party, you don't like the UK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we've, I'm glad we sorted all of that out. Um, let's go back to the Conservative Party, though. Let's focus on uh, their particular leadership problems. This is Joe Tanner. Can someone who first became famous on a comedy show run a country? Ukraine is about to find out after comedian Volodymyr Zelensky won a landslide in the presidential election. Can the same happen here? 
Boris Johnson might have risen to prominence on shows like Have I Got News For You, but is the joke now wearing thin? While some suggest he could win by a landslide, he risks failing to even get to the final two to be voted on by Tory members. So Joe, when you were working for Boris Johnson, during his two London mayoral campaigns... First one. You're not going to t- take credit for creating the monster later on. So you worked with him on the first... <laughs> we left him at the door. <laughs> <laughs> Although I was involved in the in the banning of booze on the tube. Were you? So I had a great weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you were sort of working with him. That, that was the point when he was proper chat show star, you know, have I got news for you Yeah, star, we had to pause campaigning stuff. when he was off doing stuff. <laughs> it was a nightmare. Um, is there much of that... Boris Johnson left, do you think? I I think there is in the public's mind. I'm not sure there is so much for him. If you actually look, he hasn't been doing a lot of those appearances for some time. I think some of the after-dinner stuff he's continued to do probably because of the earning potential. But um, And he is a, you know, he was an absolute genius at turning up to an event that he was being paid thousands for and being able to write an amazing speech on a napkin while uh, while eating his dinner. I mean, it was impressive, really impressive to see. but I don't. I think that I think something changed around the, the referendum, and I think the the hostility that he suffered. I mean, he had to move in the end. There were protests outside his house. He hadn't experienced anything like that before. Um, I think it was different when you know things like Liverpool happened, and you know he had sort of people that were really upset with him. That's different than actually having quite angry people outside your front door where your kids are, are living so I think things definitely changed um, and I think also the the bruising of that failed leadership bid also really took its toll and the divorce well and the divorce well the divorce is ongoing you, you could suggest that in, in other ways he's very happy but, um, but you know that's that's a discussion for another day but I think there is a seriousness now and I think there is a degree of I think he does recognize there's a degree of responsibility I think some of the brexiteers do get that 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 debate that discussion that went on during the referendum that there is a there is now a responsibility to, to deliver and he himself has been held very responsible for you know the claims from the bus about the money that the NHS were going to see and you know and you know and, that hurts him because he keeps going back and picking at the scab and trying to justify it but it, Boris generally does take notice of what gets said I mean I can remember working with him on the campaign and he used to produce his column uh, for a, another newspaper and uh Every time he produced that column, you would go in and he would be sat hunched over his computer with his shoulders kind of moving up and down and he would be reading the comments below the line. He read the comments on his columns every week and was very interested in the feedback that he yes, got. Yes, but that's just self-absorption, reading <laughs> the comments below the line. And I, I, don't, I don't agree with you. You know him much better than I do, but I don't think Boris will ever really become serious or grown up or responsible. He'll try to be for a little while because he's read below the line that people want to see him be like that. <laughs> but in the end, he is incapable of taking anything seriously. And uh, he was foreign secretary for a while. He could have taken that seriously. He didn't seem to. I think I think it's unfair to say he doesn't take things seriously. I think he does recognise there's a responsibility. I'm not necessarily saying he's going to step up. And I'm not necessarily saying that he's the right person. I've I've never advocated that. I think he's I think he's a good person to have on the team. I think there can be huge benefits to what he brings. There can also be massive downfalls. I mean, he can say something and he can derail the news agenda for all of his colleagues, for his whole government. 
you know, pretty much in a split second. And that's actually where he's going to struggle around getting on that ballot because so many of his colleagues have had to defend him at some point where he's said something, done something, and actually he's upset their weekends, he's upset their evenings, he's ruined their plans for something they were going to launch. And those are the very people that need to get him onto that ballot. And if they don't row behind him, he will not have, he won't have a chance. I mean... You know, there was a time when Russell Brand could derail the news agenda for everybody, you know, just by, by some sort of utterance. <laughs> I, think, I mean, the, I think where Boris Johnson is at the moment, he was, a, he was a farcically poor foreign secretary. And he didn't have to be. You know, he didn't have to be. He, um, you, I think it's worth, post-referendum, you compare him with Michael Gove, is the obvious comparison there. And what Gove has obviously done, and I'm not a huge fan of either of them, but what Gove's obviously done is... And when he, what he had to do because he wasn't in the cabinet to, to start with, but he is take a step back, rebuild his political reputation, rebuild a reputation for competence, get basically sort of quietly get his head down, do work, um, and appear as somebody who knows how to run things and do things, and just sort of escape the kind of um, the sort of because the the way in which a lot of Brexters were tarnished was as was as as cavalier as as, as irresponsible. And you can see how hard Gove's worked to overturn that reputation. But Gove's yes. also had a track record of coming up with big well, ideas, which yeah. Boris has not done. Which Boris we, has not had a big moment where he's he come never up will. with but he was, but it's he was, not his thing. But he was Foreign Secretary, and, and, and particularly at a time of Brexit, it would not have been hard for him to, as Foreign Secretary, to have travelled the world being dignified, not screwing up everywhere he went, managing not to insult every other country, just sort of quietly going around and being an impressive statesman. Lord knows we needed one at the time, and he just wasn't capable of doing it. And that's it. where he went back to type, because if you look at a lot of the photo ops that you do as London Mayor, um, the first one he did, he went to, it was after I'd gone, but the first photo op he had as London Mayor, he went off to clean up some sort of river or stream or something and he had this kind of thing that you pick up rubbish with and a black bag or something and then managed to fall in now that was no accident in the river yeah that yeah. was no accident of course not. No. because you know the reason that he's rugby tackled kids in in football matches and things is because it means that those photo ops get covered mm -hmm. and that's why you know some of the ones he did when he was abroad he would you know bring his borisism to them because if you actually look half the stuff that jeremy hunt does you don't see mm -hmm. and boris has got that you know it's a knack it's not necessarily always right, but it is a knack of ensuring that this stuff gets covered, this yeah, stuff gets seen. Yeah, but it, 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 he's fundamentally unserious. And Michael Gove is fundamentally serious. I, I, both of them recognise they need to be seen to be taking responsibility. Uh, both of them recognise that that's the, that's the PR need. But the fact is that Michael Gove is actually interested in things. He's really interested in policy. You could talk to him all evening about agricultural policy or whatever. You might not want to, but you <laughs> Boris is basically not interested in anything. But also, the thing that Gove has done extremely well, and if you talk to his colleagues in Parliament, he's been very, very shrewd. One of the things that Boris has never really done is... is tried to make friends in politics. He was never one of these people that went out to all the dinners. People always credited Theresa May as going out to these association dinners in the dead of night, you know, to go and talk to people over as what they called rubber chicken dinners and what have you. Um, Boris always struggled because he was the one that at the last minute wouldn't turn up to the association dinner and they'd sold lots of tickets for his wonderful speech that other people pay thousands to hear. And interestingly, Michael Gove was one of those people that made an effort to go to things. But also what he did in Parliament really cleverly was he used to book himself out for a couple of hours. He would take a room in places like Portcullis House and he would invite his colleagues to come and talk to him for 10 minutes, 15 minutes at a time about issues that they had, things that were a problem. So he gave them all FaceTime, which meant over a period of a couple of years, he's been there as the DEFRA secretary listening to them about 
some problem they had and whether it's you know Steve Double down in Cornwall worried about plastic pollution or whether it's someone else worried about farming issues these people had time so they feel that Michael was interested in them. Michael is one of those people that when you meet him, he makes you feel like you're important. He makes you feel that you're, you matter for those few minutes, which Boris always did as well. But Boris would then forget and wouldn't do anything, whereas actually Michael would <laughs> and go and do something. that's one of the things, which is, I mean, the reason Boris didn't become leader in 2016 is because he didn't have enough people supporting him. And one of the reasons why Michael Gove pulled his support was because he turned up at the control centre of the Boris campaign and found there was nothing there. There was sort of a couple of bits of paper with some half promises and it, Boris didn't have the people. He's done nothing in the past three years, has he, to add to the tally of people supporting him. And actually... We've got Connor Burns. We still, but he's, he's still got Connor he's Burns. He's got Connor Burns and there are, there are a few others and there are... But there are plenty of others who are probably less sympathetic to him now than they were before. But there's, there's always been a significant Stop Boris contingent and that is his biggest problem, is that he doesn't... Not only does he not have many friends in terms of a, a group that can counterbalance any opposition, the opposition, if anything, just continues to grow. And that is going to be his downfall because it goes back to the principle. It doesn't matter how popular you are with the grassroots. If people fear a Jeremy Corbyn government some of those MPs will probably fear a Boris Johnson government. And therefore, if particularly if you're ambitious, if you're ambitious and at the moment, all of the ones that are, you know, sort of almost giving up around Theresa May are the ones that know they have no job after Theresa May goes. The ambitious ones are the ones that are worried about what it's doing to their reputation long term. And actually that's going to be the same problem with any future leader they choose. They want someone who's not going to make them look bad. Let me just make the counter case, which is that, and this is a case that's been made a lot in the past, is Jeremy Corbyn is essentially a left-wing populist. To be a populist, you need a populist and a showman, and Boris Johnson can do that in a way that Jeremy Hunt can't. The Daily Telegraph, who happen to be Boris Johnson's employers, without using his name, have talked this week about needing a populist as leader. Is there not something to be said? If you want to win the next general election, do you not need someone who can... Oh, it's a very strong argument. And I, I, you, you haven't mentioned Nigel Farage, but I can see in Tory circles, I can sense how the argument that uh, only Boris uh, can cut through against Nigel Farage, because Boris is like Nigel Farage in some ways. That's what they'll think. They're wrong because both Nigel Farage's problem is that 20 or 30 percent of people love him and um, about 40% of people just can't stand the thought of him and Boris has the same problem. But Tories will think, you know, Boris could be our Nigel. I mean, as you were saying, Joe, in Ukraine they've elected a comedian. The same thing's happened in Italy. Is there, are there any comedians in the UK, we think, actual comedians who could sweep in? No, total silence, that's fine. <laughs> Didn't Al Murray try at the last election? He did, he, he ran, against, he? He he ran against Nigel Farage. Yeah, but he didn't do that well, did he? No. I think a government co composed of Hugo Rifkin, Rory Bremner, and one or two other thoughtful people on, on the circuit, as it were, would be a great improvement well, you, on the one we've got. You only really need Rory Bremner. But to be fair to Boris, if you actually look at... I know, we talk, you know you talked a lot about his time as Foreign Secretary, but actually yeah. in London, a lot of stuff got done, a lot of things got sorted... There were other problems caused if you're not a cyclist and you don't particularly like cycle lanes. There, there's a very <laughs> firm opinion about that. But actually, there is an argument to say that somebody like Boris could do very well, depending on how you structure your government and what you do. If you become more of a figurehead and you're used for certain things and you have really key individuals in key positions, which is what he did in London. I mean, this is the Trump argument as well. But, though, this, is, but this is the point, isn't it? And, and there is that element of, you know, the, the, the challenges 
that you have somebody who is is populist who is able to bring the country along but actually what chaos happens you know alongside that is is where you then have your concerns the first thing a figurehead needs to know and understand is that he or she is a figurehead and I don't think Boris has got the distinction, the frontier between the two. Well, Hugo, as you mentioned Donald Trump, we'll talk about um, him coming to the UK in just a moment. We'll be back after this short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Chorley. Joining the studio by Matthew Paris, Joe Tanner, and this is Hugo Wifkin. Almost two decades ago, I watched as police in riot gear kettled anti-capitalism protesters at Oxford Circus. Last week, at an environmental protest at Oxford Circus, I wandered through a carnival atmosphere as a tiny handful of police chatted with protesters and had a go on the bongos. Britain's attitude towards protest has changed immeasurably in two decades, with protests about Brexit, Donald Trump, climate change and feminism now frequent and usually peaceful. This is now part of our mainstream political furniture. The question, though, is whether any of it makes any difference. So you had to go on the bongos? No, no, the police had to go on the bongos. Oh, the police had to go on the bongos. Did I phrase that badly? The police had to go on the bongos. (laughs) No, I was going to ask you to give us a rendition there. (laughs) Obviously, I can play the bongos. (laughs) Um, You know, you're you're Times columnist. How else would you feel the week? Um, Now, so do you think that this sort of rise of protest is in part because of the state of Westminster? If everything looked like it was working in normal politics, people wouldn't feel the need to take to the streets? Not quite. Okay. I think it's a symptom of the same. I think it's the symptom of the same thing that has led to the breakdown in in, in Westminster. I think people have radicalised, passionate political identities. Some things are overwhelmingly important for people, and they don't understand why they're not overwhelmingly important for everybody else. Sometimes, as is the case with 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 the climate protesters, they're right to to yes. to, 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 want, to wonder why they're not overwhelmingly important for, for for everybody else. But what was really really striking about the climate protests. Was um, look a lot of people were arrested. Over a thousand people were arrested. You look at who was arrested. It's amazing. I was reading this great article in the Shropshire Star about local people who'd been arrested, and they'd interviewed a vicar, a teacher, and a grandmother. And the grandmother was saying that uh, she was a uh, 
the only I think the only reason she maybe she wasn't arrested, but she was saying she wasn't arrested because she hadn't glued herself to the boat in the middle of Oxford Circus. She was going to, but she didn't because of bladder concerns. You know, <laughs> this, it's amazing. This is like this is not your typical protest situation, right? There was there was another. I, I wrote this down. I can't remember his name. It was a, a one protester had tweeted about getting arrested, and he tweeted afterwards. Also, shout out to Metropolitan Police for a very pleasant arrest. A cup of tea and a book to read during my few hours in a cell in Woolworth. And like, there was there was an Olymp- Olympic gold medalist arrested, and all these arrests. You look at them again. I, I like. I, it made me feel quite old, sort of thinking about this. But I, I covered protests like this ten and twenty years ago because that's how old <laughs> I am now. And um, and even you look at these arrests. Like back then, you, uh, when someone got arrested by by police at a protest, the the police were in riot gear with shields across their faces, and the people were being dragged out covered in blood. You know, this time it's people. Everyone's smiling. The police are in shirt sleeves, carrying them out, having a little chat. They go off to the cells for a bit. They come back and join in. This is just sort of part of politics in Britain now. Sort of across generations, it's quite middle class. It's a sort of middle class way of of doing politics now. I think it's a really good thing. I I, I realise that a lot of the protesters are really quite middle class, but a lot of good movements start in in the middle classes. I realise they've caused disruption, but you have to cause disruption disruption to get people to to notice and 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 their cause is terrifically important and of course politicians will deplore the the interruption to ordinary commuters days and all that kind of thing but they notice politicians notice these things i'm i'm just full of admiration for these people i, I mean it's funny. i mean I, I i agree look it's it's not cost free you know i was meant to see my my mother on easter day she's my mother's heavily disabled she couldn't get across london because of the protests so i understand that there are costs this kind of thing but they are right i mean their protest mm. their their demands are not right their demands are, are, are mad are excessive yeah. but that's what you do with protests you de- you demand 300% and if you hope you, if you're lucky you get 50% uh, w- once we would have said they're they're making demands and the government will have to act almost at the moment you can see how government or even the mayor of london are almost grateful for these protests because they provide a kind of political cover for the act for the things they sort of know they have to do yeah. anyway and yet the really interesting thing Hugo is that while the opposition parties all the opposition mm-hmm. party leaders are meeting you know Greta Thunberg the Swedish schoolgirl green campaigner Theresa May's stubbornly refusing to have anything to do with any of them and you just thought you don't want to look like you're placating every person who glues themselves to a tube train but given that so far the protests have been peaceful yep Public support seems to be... It's either support or indifference. There doesn't seem to be huge public anger with the campaign. Why wouldn't the Prime Minister want to sit down with some of these people and discuss the issue? Well, I mean, to be to be fair, Jeremy Corbyn didn't speak to the ones who glued themselves to his fence. Uh, and they, they seem quite upset by this. <laughs> I they know, think they he, were crying. Yeah, yeah, they were very very sad. Um, I mean, look, she's, she's, she's not deaf. She's not light on her feet. She doesn't understand how to deal with, with unexpected... Michael Gove will turn out and meet them. Um, yeah, I bet he will. I bet we'll see that somebody will turn out. There was a list of people that the government had offered to well, meet David Greta, Diddington. and they wouldn't. And she said no. The deal is, it's leaders. I mean, so I think you, they'd offered Claire Perry. <laughs> Uh, oh, I don't need to remind you, as the climate change minister attending cabinet, and uh, some others. But I think you're right. Michael Gove will end up uh, getting involved because he I mean, knows that this is. Yeah. Useful political, and actually, he's got a. He also he's got, he's also got some. He's also got some good stuff to say in return in terms of the things yeah. that he's been talking about. You can tell. I mean, you can tell. I'm not aware of. I may be wrong. I'm not aware of Theresa May ever having said anything about climate change, and you can understand that it's sort of just an issue that she's decided not to do, just not just not going to do that. She did do a speech once. She went to a London. Wetland Centre. They all go to the one London Wetland Centre with some beautiful views outside, but they yeah. took a printed out backdrop of the Lake District, which she then stood in front of. And I think that was her big, that was her sort of blue blue planet plastic bag 
uh, speech. I mean, polit- so politically, the kind of we're sort of nearly reaching a place that's sort of been long awaited, but I think we might actually be getting there, where conservation and conservative sort of come together. You know, Cameron tried very, very hard to make environmentalism a conservative concern. He didn't have David Attenborough. Post-Attenborough, you know, Mm. all newspapers have their anti-plastic campaign, even the mail, you know, almost especially the mail. And so there is actually suddenly this kind of sort of environmental, sort of nimby conservative crossover that's been a long time coming that, that you could see the conservatives exploiting a lot better than they currently do. If they're to do it, I think it's important that um, Greta Thunberg and, and, and co. know when to stop. Uh, the, 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 the Occupy the City people probably spoilt their cause in the end by going on for a little bit too long. Mm. I, 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 th- I think people have a sense of how much disruption they're prepared to put up with and see that something important is is there and and how much they think people are just being silly or bunking off school. So it's quite important this wave of protests knows when to stop. And it's interesting we're talking about this wave of protests being, you know, so civilised and stuff, but only a few weeks ago we were talking about how outrageous the Brexit protesters, the Mm. pro-European lot had got and the absolute bile that was being thrown at people walking down the road and, you know, getting hit with flags as I complained about this morning, (laughs) which happens on a daily Mm. basis. And um, because we were we touched on Donald Trump before, um, the news that he is coming on his state visit in early June, we're not quite sure who's going to meet him when he gets here. We assume it might be, still be Theresa May, might be someone else. Um, I think that should be the leadership contest. Were... I think they should shove out everyone that wants the job and see how they do. That could be, it could ought, be almost like an X Factor contest. We ought to subcontract choosing the Prime Minister to Donald Trump. No, no, I just, I just think it would be really interesting to see how they all handle it, and it could be a, it could be a great first test for like somebody the apprentice. who wants the job. He could yeah, hold the much. apprentice, yeah. Pretty can you, much. Can you imagine if it was Jeremy Corbyn who had to meet Donald Trump? <laughs> they'd probably That'd get on, they'd have a conversation about allotments or something, and it would turn out that he'd suddenly become Donald Trump's great right. friend. But do those protests work? So already, yes. before the date has even been confirmed, there were Facebook groups trying to organise protests for Donald Trump's visit. Look, absolutely they work. And they work because of the people who will and will not meet Trump. You know, if he, if he addresses Parliament, certainly half the Labour Party won't be there. You know, Sadiq Khan is on the record as saying to me, in fact, that he won't meet Trump for a state visit for, 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 for if he comes on a state visit. These, so I mean, these, these sort of things—they don't spring directly from protest, but protest makes it much, much easier, easier for people to make those decisions and harder for them not to make those decisions. So, I, I, it, it dramatically affects the, the, the sort of the political atmosphere in which these the, sort the of big problems, challenge is how they dress it up. Because Trump, you know, Trump can legitimately kind of—he'll use his own narrative that someone wasn't important; it didn't matter that they were there. But actually, it's what he really feared and what was being briefed at the time when the date originally for the first visit was going to be, was on the agenda. It was that he was worried about the backdrop of major protests. The Americans are coming in. They wanted to fly him in and out, didn't they? They wanted his helicopter to yeah, land. Which so he did. With the, when he came he did last with the other visit. year, exactly. he didn't, he, although he stayed in London, I'm not sure he saw any of London. No. There'll yeah. be more of that. Yeah. The, 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 the Americans are very good at tight control and quite, make quite sure he doesn't meet yeah. any ordinary people. Yeah. And, um, Which is so such in contrast to yes. Barack Obama kind of going to South London yeah. and playing basketball or whatever it was he did with David Cameron at school. So the, the fear is somebody refusing to shake hands with Donald Trump, and that I think both sides will try to see that anyone who gets anywhere near shaking hands with him is someone who will. It'd be interesting what the royal family do because the royal family all famously hate him. Um, Charles will go to open a school somewhere in the outer yes, Hebrides. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be really busy. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, well, there was that brilliant... And there were so many good photos in the, the last trip he came when the Queen... He, 
did he keep the queen waiting and then the queen he walked in front of her didn't he, he? she looked like yeah. there were all these mocked up pictures sort of, of her carrying his golf clubs real yeah. old, <laughs> old couple walking yeah. along a line of yeah. Uh, yeah. a line of soldiers but do we think we'll, we'll see more protest on political issues emerging yes well i mean so i think there's the i don't know the the kind of the middle class aspect of protest now is interesting and new um something that was very interesting about the last anti-brexit protest was it was the first huge the first big protest i've been on probably in my life and i've been on a lot of protests both covering them and participating in them um but the first one i've been on probably in my life where there wasn't a significant socialist worker presence right you know the, the sort of the socialist worker as an outfit has provided the kind of sort of aesthetic backdrop to pretty much every protest in britain beyond some they've sort of niche groups they paved the road in lots of ways. They, yeah. they dropped copies of the newspaper yeah and they hand out banners and all that all that <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff and you now have this kind of sort of remainer protest vibe that goes into the sort of women's equality party as well this kind of the centrist protest thing that has nothing to do with traditional left-wing protest which is new and fascinating and presumably goes somewhere jeremy corbyn must be big sick that there's this huge popular yes. protest that he can't really join <laughs> <laughs> but if they get their act together i mean the interesting thing is the taxi drivers in london have been protesting and they've been doing these blockades around parliament square but actually, their target is Sadiq Khan. So they've been in completely the wrong part of London. And actually, <laughs> and actually, the climate change protesters wanted the government to listen and wanted politicians to listen. And they started during recess. So, you know, when no one was around. So there is a thing that if these folks actually get their act together and do target properly when people are around to listen, that impact and that disruption will actually be, you know, will be significantly escalated. And actually, the, the People's Vote protest outside Parliament for the first vote on Theresa May's deal, probably had more impact because actually it was dark. MPs mm-hmm. walking around Parliament could hear this sort of wall yeah. of noise yeah. outside. Probably has far more impact than something on a Saturday. Well, there was one I think where Theresa May actually struggled to get into the house because of where they were, and that is when you—that's when you know—if you can actually disrupt events because you work out the time. You know, if these folks actually worked out. I don't want to give them too much help here, but if they actually worked <laughs> you out are the available timetable, for hire, though, but, you, but there is a—you know—there is a—there is a reality that you know that certain days are busy you know it's all very well going in and having a protest during some very small backbench mp debate in parliament if you start supergluing your bottoms during pmqs it has a completely different effect so there is an element of if folks actually worked out where the maximum impact opportunities are from a pr perspective speaking as a pr professional that is when you really do start to change dials because you you know you will get far more headlines far more attention it will have a significant impact, I think. Well, there we are. We always like to provide some sort of listener advice. So if, if you want to know the best day to glue <laughs> your bottom... Not too much. I still want to get around <laughs> Westminster. You want the right day to glue your bottom to the House of Commons, give Joe Tanner a ring. <laughs> um, I think that's all we've got time for uh, this week. My huge thanks uh, to Hugo, Matthew and Joe. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen so you don't miss any future episodes and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box and if you still haven't got tickets to my sort of one man show this is not normal on may the 29th you can get those from mytimesplus.co.uk but for now for me matt jolly it's goodbye hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part they're all about safe ethical and responsible manufacturing 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 